sermon series, The Story of Abraham, in Genesis chapters 12 through 22. We've listened with Abraham to the promises of God. And we have journeyed through some great tests of faith. This morning we're going to reach yet another test of faith. In Genesis chapter 17, you can turn your Bibles there. God has a lot to say to us today in this passage, so let's pray and ask Him for His help by His Spirit. Lord, make Your Word our rule, Your Spirit our teacher, and Your glory our supreme concern. For the sake of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When I was young, my uh, dad bought me my first pair of running shoes. It was an invitation to a life of running. And the thing about being a runner is when you get into a new community or a new church, you tend to notice and kind of just have this gravitational pull to all the other, all the other runners in the church. Uh, when I was uh, driving through uh, Capitol Hill, Hill here, uh, there have been a number of my brothers in Christ that I noticed are out there early in the morning, running and running and running. And keep going and keep going like the Energizer Bunny and this inspiration to me. Because the couple times that I can make it out there, I'm hit the pavement with my feet. So I'm, oh, I can't do this again. I'm really just in my mid-30s. <laughs> now, uh, to this day, it's though one of the best ways that I can handle stress. Just by pounding that pavement and going out there even if it's raining. And nowadays, I'm no more than a casual runner. But back in the summer of 2007... I had a good shot at making it to that 26.2 mile mark. That spring semester, I had just had my heart broken. Not by my wife, I hasten to add. So I decided to deal with it by training for a marathon. Right? Saturdays were the LSD runs, long, slow distance with a great high. With every passing week, though, that Saturday run got harder and harder and harder. Didn't get easier. I'd already registered for the Chicago Marathon, so there was no turning back. I kept going every Saturday, and I told myself, you know, with the Rocky theme, theme tune playing in my headphones, only injury will stop me. And the ironic twist in September, just a couple weeks before I was going to start tapering, I injured myself. The ill tibial band just took too much, and I kissed my marathon dream goodbye, and that dream has not been fulfilled to this day. As I look at my own walk with Jesus Christ, it feels like running a marathon. And I wonder, in my times of weakest faith, will it only end in injury? And for this very reason, I have found the story of Abraham so very inspiring because of its gritty description of the struggle of faith. And for Abram, it only gets harder with each step toward the fulfillment of God's promise to him. He only has God's word. Last week, Father Dan took us through Genesis chapter 15, and we were encouraged to continue in this walk of faith with Abraham, even when the going gets tough, because God is faithful. When God and the burning flames and smoke pass through the blood of the covenant with Abraham, he was promising that he would never forsake that covenant with Abram and his descendants. And if someone broke it, he alone would pass through that blood. In the following chapter, however, we see Abram and his wife Sarai 
flinch in their faith. Even though they know that God had promised them an heir in their old age, they became impatient and they took matters into their own hands. In Genesis chapter 16, Abraham is 86 years old. Keep in mind that he was about two, he was 75 years old when God first called him. 11 years have gone by, no offspring. The older he gets, the closer he gets to death. And the closer he gets to death, the closer and the more likely it seems that God's promise will fail. And the more difficult it becomes to trust God. So Sarai and Abraham, they come up with this plan for Abraham at that time to father an heir through their servant girl, Hagar. This was a custom that was common in the ancient Near East. But we later find out that this was not God's will. And the perceptive reader would know that as soon as they hatched this plan. In reality, Abram and Sarah are struggling to keep the faith that they had when they began to follow God's call. Which brings us to Genesis chapter 17. Abram is now 99 years old. Sarai is still childless. 24 years have passed since God first made his promise to Abram. For those in our church family here who are still in your mid-twenties, Abram had been waiting on God for about as long as you have been alive. Still no heir. But in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, God literally shows up. Not in the figurative literal sense. In the literal, literally sense. He shows up. Look at verse 1, chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abram. This is a mystery. We don't know what figure he had, but he appeared in a way that was perceptible to Abram's senses. He appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. God shows up and strengthens Abram in his faith by showing him something profound that is still true for us today. Let me summarize it like this. You can trust God because he is the giver of life. You belong to him and he will make all things right. If you're in Christ today, you can trust God because he is the giver of life. You belong to him and he will make all things right. Let's see how God is the giver of life, first of all. In verse 1, again, God is showing up and saying, I am God Almighty Al Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. This term, this name that is translated in our translation here as God Almighty in the Hebrew is El Shaddai. And scholars have kind of debated as to what that means and its etymology and its usage. But if we look at how God reveals that name throughout the book of Genesis... He always reveals it when he is reminding his people of his covenant to them. And his covenant specifically to give them offspring. To give life to the womb and life out of the womb. God's promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to all of their descendants is that he would make them fruitful. He is El Shaddai. Then he calls Abraham to walk before him. Again, at this point, his name is still Abraham. He calls him to walk before me and be blameless. 
blameless, perfect, pure, and really hard, can we say impossible standard. The last person, in fact, the first person in the book of Genesis to be called uh, blameless was Noah. This was when he was seen as righteous and blameless, he walked with the Lord, and God chose him to be the one through whom his, 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 uh, his uh, plan of life would continue, even despite the depravity of the world and the judgment of the flood. But we know how Noah's story ended, him getting drunk, and being shamed by his sons, and not following the Lord perfectly, blamelessly, to the end. And that kind of recapitulates what we'd see in Adam, who was given a great, the most, the best start anyone could have ever been given, failed miserably. Noah, started well, failed. Will Abraham be the one to walk blamelessly before the Lord? This gives us a little bit of a clue of where the blameless one is going to come from and how this blameless one is going to be the one through whom God, the giver of life, would bring life and blessing to the nations. We get some more clues in verses 5 and 6. God says to Abram, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. More clues, more promises. First of all, now he's changing Abram's name to Abraham, which is basically being called changing your name from daddy to big daddy. Father of many, many nations, and multitude will come from you. And he says, not only will I make you fruitful, but I will make you exceedingly Fruitful. And that brings us back to the promise, or the, 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 the command, really, the commission in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, that God gave to Adam and Eve when he said, Be fruitful and multiply and cover the earth. That's the commission given to Adam, which Adam failed miserably. It's the commission given to Noah. Noah did okay, but then again still failed. Now it's given to Abraham. But God promises, I will be the one to make you fruitful. And through, through my promise, you and your descendants are going to be the ones to fulfill this in somehow. Somehow, that, that, that command to be fruitful, multiply, and cover the whole earth. And then another clue, it's like we're given several puzzle pieces that are put there on the table and they're going to come together beautifully throughout Scripture. Kings shall come from you. So who is this blameless one who will keep the covenant perfectly? Who is this king that shall come from Abraham to be fruitful and cover the earth? At this point in the book of Genesis, it's a big question mark. But we who live after Christ and in the hope of Christ's return, we know who fulfills that question mark. Of course, it's Christ, the righteous one, the perfect one, who kept the covenant without fail. And in Him, we have the eternal hope that life, life will never lose. Life will win in the end. And we can be the people who experience that life that He gives us. Life that can even face death head on, knowing that resurrection is at the other side of death. Now, God, the giver of life, is not just up there in the heavens saying a few things at Abram, expecting him to just 
do your best and follow me, he's right there appear, appearing to him, and he's promising them, promising Abraham and his descendants that they will always belong to him. That's our second point. You belong to God. Look at what he says in verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you. In other words, I will be your God and to your offspring after you. This covenant, a picture really merits a picture of this covenant, this inseparable link, this, this uniting that God does of himself to his people, a promise that he will never break. His people will always be his people. They will always be the bride of Christ. And this is a covenant God makes to Abram, and not only to Abram, but to his offspring after him. Now, the, again, our translations here uh, uh, render that as offspring, which for us can sound like a plural kind of concept, like the many, many children, Father Abraham, and many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, that's all, I'm one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. Right, that's the way I stretch off my morning run, right? Okay. But the actual uh, grammar here is pointing to a singular seed, to your singular offspring after you. With them, with him, I will establish my covenant. The Apostle Paul makes a huge point of that in Galatians chapter 3. This is pointing to the seed. You know where seed comes up first in the book of Genesis? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That great uh, proto-evangelium, as the patristic fathers like to call it, this, this early gospel, this pre-gospel, that, that the, 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 the serpent will bruise your, his heel, but he will crush his head. Who? The seed of Eve. And so throughout the book of Genesis, we're asking, who is this seed? Who is this seed? And we find out here a little bit more about who he is, that he will be the one with whom God establishes his covenant that will never be broken. Again, here in the book of Genesis, it's one enticingly big it's a question mark. Who is this person? And we know that it is Christ. The seed of Abraham, the descendant with whom God has made the covenant that can never be broken because Christ has fulfilled it. In his death and resurrection, in his perfect life, now offered to us if we are only united with him by faith. Now we get a sign of this covenant, this, this uh, inseparability that God has tied us to by making us his people and giving us his covenants. In verse 10 and 11, we see the sign now introduced for the first time of the covenant. Verse 10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. A very gritty account here of how intimate the covenant is and how much God's people must trust in him. Think about it. Abraham, 99 years old, 
25 years ago, God had promised him that he would have a son. Still no son. You want me to do what, God? This is kind of how it works. You created it. This is how life comes. And you want me to do what? And every Israelite male after Abraham would have that mark on his body to show that he and all of his family belonged to God. And that life would only come by the grace of God. The covenant and the continuity of the covenant in the Old Testament depended on having children who had children who had children. And if there were no children in a single generation, the people of Israel, the promises would die. That's why childbearing is so important in the Old Testament before Christ. I just have to say this, this is also going to speak to infertility as we look at it in our application and look at the promises of God as the life giver, as the one who, to whom we belong, as the one who will never forsake us and make all things right. So um, if that is your situation, your story, please, please uh, just uh, stay with me here for a little bit because we're going to get to how God's promises speak to you and speak to all of us. But for now, as we're in the Old Testament, this is how the covenant is going to be continued. This is the sign on the male Israelite body that shows that they will always belong to God and he will never forsake his covenant. It's called the sign of the covenant. And of course, that beautifully points forward to the sign of our covenant in Christ. A sign that's not just for men. A sign that's for male and female together. A sign that points us to the truth that God will make all things right. Look at verse 12. When are they to circumcise the male? Verse 12. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. What happened on the eighth day? Six days, God created the earth, created the heavens and the earth. On the sixth day, he created man and, uh, man and woman. Seventh day, he rested. Eighth day, what happened? Jesus Christ rose from the dead. On the eighth day, the first day of the new creation, the eighth day points us to the fact that life does not come through procreation, eternal life does not come through procreation, but through the rebirth and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is a promise for you and for me. That is a promise for those who are single and have been waiting for a spouse for decades. That is a promise for those who have been struggling with infertility for years and years and years and say, God, are you going to fulfill your promise to me like you did to Abraham and to Sarah and wait with tears and on their knees by their bedsides praying for God to answer their prayer. This is, this is, this is the fulfillment to those who struggle with chronic illness. Like many in my own family, extended family, who for years have asked God to take away the pain from their limbs and say, God, when will you bring life and healing into my struggle? That eighth day promise, brothers and sisters, is our promise that God will never leave us and never forsake us because he has conquered death through the resurrection of Jesus Christ out of that tomb. And into eternal life. Paul gives us a clue into this 
when he's struggling with those who would force the Galatians to circumcise themselves as, as an entryway into what they thought it meant to be the people of God after Christ. And he says in Galatians 6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision mean anything at all. What counts is a new creation. And peace to all who belong to God, even to the Israel of God. Who are the Israel of God, the true people of God? Those who have come into Christ by baptism. He's, uh, uh, Paul says that in Galatians chapter 3, that those who belong to Christ, in other words, those who have been baptized into Christ, are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And then at the end of a very difficult letter that he had to write to Galatians, almost in exasperation, but actually in inspiration, he says, Finally, let no one cause me trouble because I bear on my body, not the mark of circumcision, I bear on my body the marks of Christ. Probably referring to his baptism in a profound sense. Having been baptized in water, received the seal of the Holy Spirit and the sign that he had been born again but also the marks of carrying his cross in complete abandon to the will of God, following God up to Calvary and to the point of not boasting in anything except the cross of his Lord Jesus Christ through, whom, through which he has been crucified to the world and the world to him. And so our baptism the circumcision of our new covenant in Christ reminds us of that eighth-day promise that God will make all things new and put all things to right. And literally, even though the covenant and keeping it hurts as we carry our cross and bear the marks of Christ, we have the hope that on the eighth day, we will rise with Christ. So what does this teach us today? How in our struggle with faith can we put this into practice? Taking a little a few steps back, taking a deep breath, it's been a little bit intense here this morning as, as, as this story has meant so much to my own, my own personal experience and those that I love so dearly. I want to share a, a, a brief story about what this has meant to someone in my life who has a really good sense of humor. My uh, grandfather, a Mexican-American immigrant, he grew up in northern Mexico, came to the U.S., had a very long journey and a story of having to trust God with each step of the way, moving to Chicago, to the inner city, really bad neighborhood, raising five kids in that neighborhood. He had to trust God. And uh, when I was growing up, I'd visit him often, uh, um, he, he would sing one of those classic Baptist hymns that just gets in your head and you can't get it out. And he would sing it because he was a genius, he learned English and like, Less than a year, mastered it, and he always played around with Spanglish for the rest of his life. And I would hear this song, and I would sing it in my own heart. It went like this. Trust and obey, porque no hay otro way, para que ser happy con Jesus, más que trust and obey. <laughs> Grandpa, thank you for your Spanglish. I'll never forget that song. Very simple message. Trust and obey. Now, for some here, that call to trust and obey might be a startling wake-up call. 
Maybe you're not trusting God to the point of where it actually hurts and costs you something. I think of my uh, Muslim background believer colleagues back in Ethiopia. I had gone to Ethiopia as a Western missionary, and part of the requirement for going to Ethiopia was raising enough money to have a very secure um, uh, medical insurance plan that covered medical evacuations. This was just a requirement, and uh, those in the West who have this privilege, we made, made use of it. And I know some friends personally who, if they hadn't had that uh, insurance, they would have died. So we had that insurance as well. And I'm not, uh, I'm not speaking against insurance as a good thing. But my brothers and sisters in Christ, who have forsaken everything for following Jesus, and had been rejected from their families, and would pray every single day this prayer, this day's bread, that's how the Amharic syntax work. Not tomorrow's bread, not yesterday's bread, but this day's bread. Give us our Father in Heaven. And they would trust God without insurance, because they couldn't get insurance. And I remember this one specific Muslim background believer friend. He was always asking me to help out financially other evangelists, because he knew how difficult they were having it. He wasn't trying to get money for himself, but um, he knew that, that um, I, I knew some, uh, some churches that really wanted to support some evangelists, and there were some ways to support these these friends of his, and I remember thinking, I wonder how my friend, who's raising all this support and generously giving it to others, I wonder how he's doing. And I asked him one day, uh, how, how are your kids doing? And he said, they're doing well. And I said, you remind me of, I met your family once, but how many, how many kids do you have? He said, I have five children. Three of my own, and one that we adopted because her parents died of AIDS. And the fifth that we took in because her family rejected her because she became a Christian. God is providing for us for each day's need. This friend taught me more about following Christ than most people. The faith that he has to live day by day, month by month, not knowing where the next month's rent will come from, not knowing where even next day's food may come from in the hard times. But this is the life of faith that God has called him to. He is trusting God, even to the point where it hurts. If you've come to D.C. and you're young and all the opportunities are ahead of you and you're climbing the ladder, have you asked yourself, what is the kingdom I'm truly seeking? Am I really carrying my cross to the point where it hurts? Am I forsaking something that I wanted so dearly, but I'm giving it up because there is a greater reward in sacrificing it for Christ? Well, that's kind of the hard-hitting application of this morning, about how we, like Abraham, need to follow God even to the point where it hurts. But to others here today, you have been following God faithfully for year after year, decade after decade. And what you need today is that soothing, comforting word that God is with you. He is the giver of life. You belong to him and he will make all things right. Recently I've been um, uh, diving, doing a, a deep dive into the theology of disability. 
as a way of growing in my own faith, my own understanding of my brothers and sisters in Christ, who this is part of their story. And I've been, I've just been floored by the amount of faith that those whom God has called into disability, that they display on a day-to-day basis without any fanfare or any praise from men. And the way that they, in their faith, and there are some, uh, in my own family, um, some of the older women in my family have struggled with chronic pain for decades. And I've asked these dear loved ones of mine, what keeps them going? And it's the promise of God and of the resurrection that they will have in Christ, and that they are beautiful and beloved in God's eyes now, because they belong to God. And so I want to speak this word of encouragement to you if you've been following God. Like Abraham, if you've been trusting him and saying, God, I am carrying my cross to follow you to where your promises are leading me, even when I cannot see what is ahead of me, even when my answers seem unanswered, when my prayers seem unanswered and my desires are so unfulfilled. God speaks this word of comfort to you today. He purchased you at the cost of his own life. He made you his own by sealing you with your baptism and the promise of your new birth and of your resurrection in him. And you will inherit eternal life in the world that he will bring to earth where there is no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness. And in this life riddled with struggles and pain and sorrow, God will never let you go. He is your God. He is with you. And he will never forsake you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.